Hey, it's Michael, and this is the Kintsugi Podcast. I'll be back in a minute with this week's conversation about resilience. But first, if you wish to create a better life and have a better career, then please visit michaelobrienshift.com and download your free workbook on how to create a better life. In it, you'll discover ways to find more energy for the things and the people who matter most to you so you can create a better tomorrow. It's Michael and welcome back or welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast. It's time for another conversation about resilience. And today we have a special guest, Sebeni Selassie. You may know her from the 10% Happier Podcast and App with Dan Harris. She's a mindfulness and meditation teacher, but most importantly, she's just one of those great human beings looking to be a better human being to other human beings, to paraphrase Austin Channing Brown. And this month in our Leadership Academy, we dove into the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but wanted to bring in a sense of belonging. Now, I've followed Sebeni for a bit, followed her a little bit more closely when she made it to the 10% Happier podcast. And recently she wrote a book entitled You Belong, The Great Sense of Belonging. And what I love about it is that as you think about changing the world, no matter how big or small your world may be, every change starts at home. It starts with how we see ourselves, that conversation that we have with ourselves, which is a core part of being resilient, right? We have to have a good self-narrative for us to have faith to get back up again and to keep pedaling. And her book really focuses in on that, that true belonging, true inclusion starts at home in, in how we see ourselves. And once that conversation that we have with ourselves improves, it gets healthier, then we can have better conversations with others. And almost like a stone being skipped in a pond, it creates these waves of energy, these waves of energy that creates more connection. Because after all, we're all connected to one another, even though we don't necessarily behave like we do or think that we do, but we are. We're all connected. And what I love about her book is that it helps us start with connecting to ourselves so then we can connect better with those around us. So we can create a better tomorrow, a better normal, if you will. So if you know Sebeni, you already know her wisdom and her energy, her grit and her grace. If she's new to you, Welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast. I know you're going to fall in love with her, as I have over the years. So if you don't have your coffee or tea already, hit pause, grab it, sit back, and listen to the wisdom and the energy of Sebeni Selassie. Sebeni, thank you for joining us. So I'm so thrilled. This is one of the joys on my calendar all week, and it's been a week of a lot of joy. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Michael. So I have to start when we're recording this the end of the third week of January. I know we started 2020, the last three weeks have felt like a roller coaster of different emotions. So uh, before we dive into your book and all your wonderful wisdom, I, I need to ask, like, how are you processing the last three weeks or sort of how are you today with all that's happened in the world and in particular our country? Yeah, thanks for asking. You know, today I'm doing really well. We've had a really um, wonderful week uh, for our country, I think, and for democracy in general. And it feels um, like a huge relief. I think navigating the start of 2021 just felt very 
rocky and almost like ripping a wound, uh, you know, a scab off a wound. So it's not that um, we didn't know it was there, but it was just kind of revealing the pain and the pus again. Yeah. So it feels like some healing and some tending to that wound this week. Yeah, I agree. It it felt calming. I um, shed a few tears this week, almost like the, yes, the energy that I had in my backpack that I had not fully emptied over the, like to say the last year, or maybe even the last four years that may have been like shoved into a little pocket in your backpack. Uh, All that stuff sort of came out. And so um, I feel Today on this Friday, I feel lighter um, and certainly more hopeful. So, um, well, thanks for sharing. And I'm glad things are, it's been a good week. So let's dive into You Belong. So I just um, love the book. Uh, It's one of the reasons why we wanted to highlight it. So one of the big things when I look at life is that things don't really happen without conversation. Like everything happens through conversation. And the most important conversation is the one you have with yourself. But we often don't want to really dive into that work, that conversation we're having with ourselves. And I know you you said in the book, you could have basically like labeled every chapter like, you know, with a focus on you, like, you know, you belong. And so I want to start there. Like, what does it mean to know yourself or know thyself? And I definitely loved all the references to all the personality assessments. I've taken almost every one that you listed uh, in your book <laughs> um, uh, throughout my career. So uh, I would love for you to share and bring, you know, your book to life, if you will, and the importance of knowing ourselves, especially in this moment, and how that can help really foster more belonging in our communities and, our, and across our country. Yeah, thank you. Such a great question. You know, the book is is called You Belong, A Call for Connection. And the call for connection is really starts with the connection with ourselves that I'm using belonging kind of as a synonym for joy and freedom and a sense of well-being that is our birthright and is actually the truth of our reality without all of the patterning and conditioning and trauma and um trials and tribulations that we have to deal with. And and that is an inside job. So that know yourself part is a really important step to come to some understanding of those patterns of your conditioning so that you can start to loosen them to to touch into that freedom, which is always possible. You know, I'm, I'm coming from the premise that belonging is the truth. Like we all belong. It's the, it's the fundamental truth of ancient wisdom traditions and scientific facts like we we belong we're all interconnected and we just have to come back to that knowing but i actually start with the step called ground yourself so before know yourself is ground yourself because as you said you know most of us don't want to do that work of knowing ourselves because it actually takes some stillness and some silence and some capacity to be with what's here because we tend to not want to know ourselves because it's not comfortable and just because something is not comfortable, it doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. <laughs> Actually, yes. it's often the opposite. So know yourself begins with grounding yourself and building that capacity to actually be with your experience, witness what's there, start to be able to unpack without running away or distracting yourself or um, trying to just make everything pleasant all the time. 
So from, I come from, um, you know, a particular meditation practice, mindfulness meditation. So I'm encouraging people to develop that capacity to just mindfully sit with or be with their experience so that they can know themselves. That's great. When, when I was going through my recovery, a mentor shared with me, this was, this was part of my shift. He shared with me like, hey, Michael, all the events in your life are neutral until you label them you know, try to have more neutrality to have some space because I was quick to judge the whole experience um, as good, bad, right or wrong as we are today. So I love what you just shared. Also loved what you shared in the book just around that connectivity and the nod to like energy. Like we're basically, we're, we're all energy. Uh, everything around us is energy. And we all have a ripple effect, if you will, just like that stone that's tossed into the pond, right? And we have our connection and animals communicate this way and we communicate this way, even though maybe that muscle has atrophied over the years as we've built mm -hmm. language. Um, so around this whole concept of connection, I wanted to ask you, because what we see in the world are, are, you know, based on worldview is like some things that are, we, we like to think are not right or, or wrong, or we see emotions that we don't feel like we're connected to, like the hate and anger that we may have seen in the beginning of 2021. And I know from watching it, we're like, well, we're not connected to those people. But in reality, we are because we're all connected. And I, I was hoping you could share a little bit more about how do we, how do we get to that point where we have acceptance that we're all connected, even when we see things that are unattractive, that we're like, well, that's, that's them, not me. But it's really all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another kind of fundamental premise of the book is um, comes out of Buddhist thought, but really we can apply it to all different systems of thinking. You know, science says this too in its own way. Uh, it's called the paradox of the two truths. And the thing about them is that they're both true. That's why they're a paradox. And it's the absolute truth of that interconnection. We're not separate. But it's also the relative truth that we come into this world with our particular bodies and experiences and genealogies and histories uh, and identities. And those come with uh, history and systems of oppression and um, inequality. And so we, we're kind of navigating those two things all the time, that truth of our interconnection and the truth that we're not the same. So although we are not separate, we are not the same. I, I keep saying that over and over sure. in the book. And so for me, kind of encountering these systems out in the world, you know, we sort of name these systems of oppression, white supremacy or patriarchy or misogyny or the things that we witness. But we also have to realize that systems are made up of people and I am people. You know, we are people and these systems are inside of us. And so what I invite people to do is rather than kind of seeing that as something outside of me only, start to see how they're just patterns of domination and how we replicate patterns of domination within ourselves. And it might be a sort of better than because I don't have that same type of ideology or particular hatred, but that's still a domination move. <laughs> to yeah. kind of think yourself better than. I use the example of George Bush, who was at the inauguration this week, who was someone I had to kind of contend with. Feels like easier times now. But I, uh, you know, had a lot of kind of hatred and arrogance about uh, thinking that he was wrong for what he did, which he was. 
Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's likely a war criminal. And what I started to do is just kind of practice with imagining what it would be like to be him. So of course, if I switch places with someone I disagree with today, I would think like I do today. But if I lived and walked their exact path from their birth, which includes their genetic and epigenetic inheritance, uh, if I walked their exact path and met the, and met me today, I would be them. And to think any differently is a kind of domination move. It's an arrogant move. So that doesn't mean that we don't challenge what's unjust and we don't um, fight for equality or, or challenge oppression, but we don't do it with the arrogance that someone should think the way we do, given our history and our perspectives. I love that. Yeah. When I read that passage about, you know, almost like loving kindness in a way, right? Loving kindness meditation. It was, yeah. It was a loving kindness practice, yeah. You know, in Meta, and like, I was like, oh, wow, like we could, like, you know, in our household, we had to do that too. It was really difficult. And yeah, so you you mentioned it was like the bygone days, you know, it seemed um, <laughs> a lot simpler back then <laughs> compared to what we lived through over the last four years, even more challenging, right? So uh, it sort of proves that we can go deeper sometimes in our work than we realize. So, so on this whole notion of connection, you know, when I look at things, I mean, everything's sort of digital now, and there's a lot of ways to track like who we are and what we do, like from steps to, in my sport of cycling, miles or in, in companies, uh, performance reviews and stack ranking and like who has what, and of course, followers and likes and like all these different data points. It's almost like we've lost our humanity and now we're just like <laughs> data <laughs> when we think about big data. And, and then it's ripe for comparison and judgment and something called FOPA, which is fear of people's opinions. So <laughs> would you recommend then again, um, mindfulness meditation as a way to slow things down and bring more awareness to when we have these thoughts of comparison and try to reframe the situation? I'd love to get your commentary on that because we live in an infinite world, you know, to a degree, right? But we have so much, um, so many things in our lives that are finite, that are, you know, the, the, the whole notion of scarcity. So I'd love to get some thoughts about how do we navigate that piece of life? Yeah, you know, it's such a good question. I have a, a part in the book about comparison and competition and how, you know, it's born out of the culture that we're we're in. So we learn those habits very young and it's hard to not have um, it come from that sense of lack, you know, because we're measured and evaluated since the time we're little kids and we internalize that and that leads to that feeling of not belonging. And so um, how to balance that uh, with our own sense of goals and aspirations and um, our achievements that we we enter into with good intentions, but then get warped into feelings of inadequacy or um, you know less than if if they're not met or if we encounter difficulties or challenges. And I, I do think you're exactly right. Like it's our mindfulness practice that allows us to learn, you know, when we've sort of gotten gone askew from what our original tensions were. And I don't really go into this in the book, but I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I do this regularly and it just coming back to what is my intention? You know, if I, if I have um, a real sense of purpose and mission in my life, and it doesn't have to be some outsized mission to, you know, 
to end white supremacy, although I'm hope I think all of us want that. Yeah, yeah that would be a good um, one. <laughs> yeah, but it could be to just be the best parent that I can be, or you know, to to run my business with a sense of you know, ethical responsibility towards my community, or to um, you know, be uh, a teacher that can really see the potential in every student. And whatever it is that we do, we can come to it with a deeper sense of purpose and mission that is really aligned to our values. And then it's tracking that by seeing like, okay, you know, if I'm going to post this thing because I, I want it to inspire people, is me checking to see how many likes it gets compared to someone else's post? Is that really serving the mission? Is that yeah. really serving the intention? Or is that coming from a sense of lack and not belonging that I need to address in a, in a different way? I love that. I have a private group on Facebook of uh, Peloton, the spin bikes mm -hmm. um, uh, owners. And one of the things that we, like I try to constantly sort of weave into our dialogue because there's a, there's the whole sense of what a Peloton is, which is a group of cyclists in a bike race. So they're all on different teams, but they're all going down the road together. They need each other to go down the road as safely and as fast as possible. But with um, with that concept of community, which is one of the pillars of, I think, that organization, there's a whole bunch of competition and comparison within it. <laughs> so part of it is like, just you know, like really like trying to emphasize like you do you, like you belong to you. Um, and and don't let this be an uh, invitation to think you're less than just because someone's working out more frequently than you or is stronger or faster or whatever. It's this, it's this constant tug of war that we're going through, especially I think in today's world. And I think social media is good for a lot of reasons. Like I sort of, you know, I, you know, I got introduced to you through Dan's show. Um, so we'll call podcasting a, a form of social media. So that's good. But yeah, it does end up causing a lot of comparison where it probably doesn't need to. So uh, one thing I, I want to get to, and I love that you wrote about this, because this was critical for me as I went through my recovery was just the power of gratitude. When I was in the early stages of my recovery, all I saw was everything I lost, everything I couldn't do anymore. And then someone introduced gratitude to me. So then I could start seeing some of the things I still could do, I still could have. So how has gratitude shaped your life and how, how do you weave it into your life today? Yeah, gratitude is a huge practice. I think, um, you know, there's there's in some ways a lot of attention given to it and people keep gratitude lists and, you know, Oprah promotes it and it's something spoken about a lot, but it's actually, uh, I, I think there's um, even more room for weaving it into our lives because we... I think as a culture have lost that sense. And it's partly because we have such critical eyes now, which is great because there's a lot about our culture and society that needs to be restructured. And so we come, many of us, and especially young people with this critical focus on what needs to be changed and you know what is still not working and who's left out. And all of that is really important if it's balanced with personal senses of gratitude and collective senses of gratitude. And so for me, it's really about starting my day and, and really uh, creating that energy as the foundation for all of that other work, which might be more critical and kind of analytical and and pointed at, at what needs to change. So I, I mentioned in the book, and I, I did it this morning, I have a gratitude practice uh, through text message with one friend who I do it 
almost every day. You know, we, we rarely miss a day. And then a couple of other friends that I do periodically where we'll send gratitude lists to each other. And we, and we, you know, kind of mix it up. So sometimes we'll do uh, gratitude photos. So we'll actually take pictures of the things that we're saying that we're grateful for and, and add a little uh, comment. Sometimes we, we do a list of five every day, but sometimes we'll we'll just do kind of an extended explanation of one. So, you know, we we mix it up to, to make it fun, but I, I find that a really great practice. That's great. I, I do my practice in the evening as I get ready for bed. So That's uh, great. I have a practice in the morning where I ask myself seven questions as I'm having my water before I get my mind and body connected. And then what bookends the day for me are those seven questions in the form of a gratitude practice as I'm getting ready for bed, as I'm brushing my teeth. And so I have a nice little um, thought pattern, if you will, as my head hits the pillow. That's beautiful. So it, not to pry into personal life, but since you did it this morning, is there anything from your gratitude practice that you can share with us today? like what you're grateful for as you woke today? I, um, one of the things I was grateful for, you know, and it, could, it can be as kind of mundane as this, is my Rodia um, journals. Because oh, yeah. yeah. I, I just discovered these journals and they have um, dots inside them, which I love because I'm not a very neat writer, but I don't like lines. And so yeah. this is like, gives me kind of a, a, a grid um, and they lay flat open without like losing any kind of of the binding oh that's so cool and they have a little pocket in the back and oh, they have a little like bookmarks so yeah, yeah i highly recommend them <laughs> oh no i i love i love expressing gratitude for the monday and i i much like mindfulness practice i'm i'm gonna guess that you would agree with this it's like our ability to take our our practice if you will off the mat you know you know so we can meditate for 10, 20 minutes, however long, some folks longer. But if we don't weave it into the course of our day, just like if we don't weave gratitude into the course of the day, it, I think it has, um, there's some danger in there. It just becomes transactional. It becomes transactional and it becomes, uh, it becomes uh, unapplicable. You know, yeah. it's, it's called practice for a reason. And we're not practicing to become good meditators. We're practicing yes. so that we can bring that awareness into our into our daily life, as you're saying. And sometimes I think there can be this um, belief that it's about achieving certain states, mm, yes. certain experiences, and it becomes almost like people who become addicted to peak experiences, that then the meditation becomes a place where I can experience this particular state that I, I find pleasant or you know, exciting or whatever it might be, but we were not able to then apply that capacity to awareness into everyday life. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like we're all trying to like grab after we have a outcome attachment to flow, but we got to get there, you know, yeah. <laughs> like we got to get there. That becomes the destination as opposed to just, you know, being and um, connecting with our breath. So I, your story about your your battle with cancer obviously is a theme throughout the book. And I know for me, I didn't truly wake up to life and therefore wake up to connection and, and my sense of belonging until I had my accident and I went through my recovery. So I was hoping you could share, you know, how you see life differently uh, as you battle cancer and as a cancer survivor, you continue. I know it's probably is, 
is always on your mind in some form or fashion. So how how is that a pivot point for you? Oh, in so many ways. Uh, also, because I, I had three occurrences of cancer over 10 years. So um, it was a long process for me. And interestingly enough, uh, I was already a meditator and had been studying Buddhism for a number of years when I was first diagnosed at the age of 34. So you know, for me, it was uh, really seeing my practice in action. I, I used to come to practice um, mostly in times of suffering, like a lot of people. So like, you know, practice more after a breakup or, yes. <laughs> you know, when dealing with some kind of stress of figuring out what to do with my life. And when things were quote unquote going well, you know, wouldn't practice as much. But uh, cancer, you know, is sort of the ultimate call to practice as um, a way of life rather than just crisis management. Uh, so it, it fundamentally did shift my practice because it deepened it so much. So, you know, before that I had been practicing and studying with teachers and even had done a couple of retreats with my first diagnosis, I became a really serious practitioner. And so that deepened, not just, um, the actual practice, but also the integration of uh, a deep study into what what am I practicing for? And, you know, there there is that saying and understanding that, you know, we're practicing for death. So I was meeting that really head on, like, what does it mean? Like, what what is this practice really talking about? And uh, that led to many, many years now, 15 years later, uh, a much, much deeper uh, relationship to the Dharma, but really to life. That's so great. And how's your how's your health now? It's great. It's good. Yeah, I have a lot of uh, not a lot, but I have some lingering side effects, including lymphedema and some lung damage and uh, other issues. But I'm I'm very healthy. So thank yeah. you. No, no, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, as do I. I have a couple things that always stay with me. Just to, it reminds me of what I've been through. Mm-hmm. So it's exactly. um, it's a it's a wonderful gift. So. You referenced it a little bit just today, obviously in the book too, white supremacy. Um, the work I do, I do a lot of work as a, a white guy, which is rare in the gender equity and belonging or inclusion space. And when I look at corporate life, because I, I do believe that if we can change how we work together, we can change how we live together since we spend so much time at work. And I think what is happening. I, I think this moment feels different. It feels different for me since we go back to Black Lives Matter, or you know, second chance at it, if you will, with George Floyd's murder. That we we can make the progress we wish to make if white men are not involved in this dialogue and 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 action. So this one thing to talk about is, uh, as you know, uh, and you would agree, it's another thing to do something about it. So. As you look at it, like what advice would you have for white men um, in this moment? Because I think this is a moment, as I shared just the other day, this is an inflection point moment. It feels that way for me. And every moment has a beginning of that moment and sort of the tail end of that moment. In the last four years, I think it was the beginning of that moment. The next four years could be the end of that moment. But so I, I was hoping you could share just advice for um, the white men out there in terms of like, taking advantage and leveraging this moment so we can create a better tomorrow for all of us? Mm -hmm. It's a really good question and an important one um, because uh, there's uh, still so much to be seen 
you know, that critical eye that I was talking about before. And something, I don't know if I say it exactly like this in the book, but something I, I've been thinking about is um, this balance between the two truths of our absolute interconnection and our relative separation or identities. And I think that we can sway towards one or the other in our, depending on our sense of comfort <laughs> with particular viewpoints. And a lot of white folks and, and men can kind of sway towards the absolute truth, you know, want to kind of emphasize that truth of our interconnection and this, you know, energetic, this can happen a lot in spiritual spaces, but can it even happen in, you know, secular spaces where there's sort of uh, the, the meritocracy idea, or, you know, we're, we're all just on the, on a, the same playing field. And, sure. and then there can be a tendency among people of color or women or other marginalized groups to kind of lean towards the relative side and not want to acknowledge the truth of our interconnection because there's so much work to do and there there's so much to there there's such an emphasis on um the taking care of those who are really affected um disproportionately and and adversely by these systems so my advice would be to kind of notice where you lean and and start to pay attention to where you're not. I also use a metaphor of concentric circles to kind of show or to to imagine visually this idea of marginalization and that there's often this emphasis um, on bringing people to the center. You know, there's even the phrase from margin to center, as if everybody wants to be in the center. And if the center is where you know, kind of the the rich white cisgendered, hetero, white guys are, um, it, there, there is this myopic view that comes from that. Like you're only looking inwards to the center. And I encourage people who are in the center to actually move out to the margins because people from the margins constantly come into the center. They have to work in the center. They get educated in the center. They get resources in the center, but it's rarely that. And then sometimes people in the center then think that they have perspective on the margins because they've met folks who have come in. Yes. So they're like, oh, I have a couple of black friends. You yeah, know, yeah. They, they, they come into my center of work or yes. education or, oh, and so really yeah. encouraging people to move out to the margins to start to, it, it, it's so mind expanding and life expanding to know different realities. And, and that's, um, a huge privilege that people of color have. I actually don't like the term white privilege, although white people are given unasked for unearned privileges all the time. It's not a privilege to not have perspective or to be ignorant or to be unconsciously biased. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I try also to emphasize for people of color to understand the privilege they have in the great perspective and understanding that we have because we we have moved through so many worlds because we come in and out of the center all the time. So going out to the margins might be reading books by different people, you know, taking in different media, watching movies from different cultures and communities. I tell the story often of my friend Elaine, who's a 60-something-year-old white Jewish lesbian Dharma teacher. And we used to have lunch every week. So we taught together a lot. And Every week she would be reading a book by a black author. And I said, Elaine, what's going on? She yeah. said, oh, you know, I spent 60 years basically only reading white stuff. So I've decided I'm only going to read black women from now on until I feel like I'm, I'm understanding Very something cool. besides my own world. Awesome. I love that. I love that. Well, one of the things we 
pride ourselves on here in our academy and on the show and the whole thing is just the whole concept of resilience. You have it in in your life. I know you've done, you even did a, a resilience uh, meditation for 10% happier. So I heard it again a few weeks ago. So for you, what does resilience come down to? What What, what is it, if you will? Oh, you know, I, I know what it feels like. It feels like... Um, a really deep and sacred trust. Uh, so often we think something happening is a mistake or something gone wrong. I thought that about cancer many times. But if we really understand the kind of mystery and um, unfathomable number of causes and conditions that led to any moment. So if I think back even my own genetic lineage, lineage, lineages, and um, all the genetic and epigenetic material that's been handed down, then all of the experiences I've had since my birth, many of which I probably can't even remember. So those are both, you know, um, traumas and teachings and learnings and understandings. Like anything that's happening in this moment is meant to happen. Yes. It's not maybe good or just in terms of whether I want it to happen or if it's, I find it harmful or if it's, you know, systemic, but it's meant to happen because it couldn't be otherwise given all of its causes and conditions. So resilience to me is a really deep trust, a deep sacred trust in the fact of this moment being what it is and allowing that and then choosing my response to it. I love that. Yeah, one of the best answers I've I've heard about that. Um, a lot of what you just shared, I you know went back to like just my my whole experience. You know, when I would I would judge it, I'd label it, and then I had to try to come to peace with it and find that neutrality with it, and realize that well, this is a moment. Like I could give it a different label. I I could choose a different response, um, shift my attention in a different direction, if you will, um, and. You know, when people ask, when people have asked me, I'm sure they've asked you maybe about your cancer, they've asked me about my accident. Like, if you could turn back time and it didn't happen to you, would you want to turn back time? And uh, my answer always is no, like, no, like it's mm. turned, it's shaped me into the person I am today. Oh, it, it's yeah. connected, you know, without that, it doesn't connect us. So we, we don't meet. So, um, so the answer is no. Um, it's, it's part of my lived experience and shaped me as a person. So, uh, bring it on. Right. So bring on the moment. So, yeah. Yeah. And that means trusting every moment. So sometimes it can have good to, you know, I can have, um, like an acceptance of that. And I've, I've come to the same kind of, um, appreciation for my experience. I wouldn't change it. Not, not a minute of it. And then something bad will happen quote unquote bad. And I'll be like, oh, and, I, yeah. <laughs> and then it's, it's really coming back to that trust, whatever is happening, including outside of my life, you know, January 6th. Yes. Like whatever is happening to really trust that then we can choose a response to this moment. Yeah. I, for me, what we've lived through, to me, it's, this is beautiful gift of awareness. Uh, I often say like no mud, no lotus. It's part of our mud. Like we got to yeah. go through the mud and the muck and the dark and the dame. 
uh, dank to get to, you know, a beautiful flower. So we got to get through some of these moments. And th this is part of our journey, these moments. And to let let that moment breathe for as long as it needs to breathe. So, uh, no, I, I, I love that. I love the concepts you're sharing. So you um, you chose the Loveland uh, Foundation as your charity. Obviously, people know we want to contribute to a greater good here. And so we make a donation to all of our experts and all of our authors that come in. So why um, I know Rachel and I know Rachel's work, but I would love for you to plug her foundation and the work she does and why you chose that charity as the charity you wish to honor. Yeah, I chose that because of its emphasis on uh, mental health for Black women and girls. And, you know, I work a lot in communities of color and uh, with Black folks and I'm really committed to making uh, spaces of healing and of uh, practice accessible for folks who normally can't access them. And so what may seem like, you know, an easy thing to access for some of us, uh, mental health services and therapy uh, can be really debilitatingly inaccessible for others. And I know how much therapy and therapeutic spaces have helped me navigate traumas and um, experiences that I otherwise would not have been able to navigate. You know, I spent years in therapy <laughs> and really benefited from it. And so, you know, we talk about meditation or things that seem easily accessible now because there are apps, but uh, to have the attention and care of a trained and dedicated therapist, especially ones that can really address the needs of particular communities, I think that's an incredibly valuable gift that um, I want everyone to have access to. That's great. Well, we'll we'll definitely share more about her foundation. I, you know, I think she, doing incredible work, and in our household too. Where my oldest daughter, part of her purpose, passion, if you will, is to help destigmatize mental health. You know, it's so so common for us to talk about orthopedic health or cardiovascular health or allergies or what have you, right? We'll we'll openly talk about that if we gather over dinner or at work. But mental health, especially as we've gone through the last year, is still really difficult to talk about. Um, and I hope, I hope, and I, I believe, I want to believe, I want to be optimistic that we can get to a, a point, a space where we talk about our mental health concerns just as uh, freely as we do our orthopedic uh, health issues, like our knee replacements and hip replacements. Uh, um, it's it's all part of pain and the healing process and getting better and and living with health because if we don't have our health then you know i think you and i both know we would trade almost anything to have it <laughs> so yeah uh, and, and just to mention you know meditation can be contraindicated for people who are really suffering from anxiety depression sure. or um have not kind of treated some 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 deeper mental health issues and so as a meditation teacher i'm i'm is particularly uh, interested in people getting access to mental health so that they can ben get benefit from meditation when they're ready for it. Perfect, perfect. Well, since it's all about belonging and connection, I have to, one final question I got to ask. What's the best way for people to connect with you if they wish to connect? Oh, thank you. Yeah, my website is my name, sabanaiselassie.com. And uh, 
all of my social media handles are just my full name. So I'm on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, I would love to hear from folks. Cool. Well, Sabine, thank you for joining us. Um, it was wonderful. And again, thank you for writing your book. Uh, it's wonderful. It's one of my favorites um, that I've read over the last couple of years. So um, thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you, Michael. It's been great to be here. Welcome back. Isn't she great? Again, I just love her grit, her grace, her wisdom, her energy, and just the whole concept of belonging, because we need more of that, more of it today than ever before. Because after all, as I mentioned up front, we're all connected. We need a connection at work, as I've shared in the past. I believe we can change how we live together once we change how we work together, because we spend so much time at work. To really have a good sense of connecting with others, though, starts with the connection we have with ourselves, like every journey that starts at home. And once we see ourselves in that Kintsugi spirit, if you will, that yes, we have cracks and scars and blemishes and wrinkles and gray hairs or fewer hairs, all that stuff we don't need to hide. We don't need to filter it away. We can embrace it because yes, we have cracks, but we can be put back together more beautifully in the true sense of the Kintsugi repair, the golden repair, Kintsugi art, that we all have it. Some are physical, some are emotional. I have both, I'm sure you do as well. But they all tell this beautiful story of resilience, of connection, and how we need each other to get back up again. So I just love her work. I hope you do as well. If you don't follow her, I invite you to do so. You can find her on Instagram. You can visit her website, which I'll put in the show notes. And if you haven't read her book, You Belong, I encourage you to do so. It's a great read, especially a great read going through this moment in time. So again, Sebony, thank you for joining us. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation with Sebony on belonging and how we can create a better tomorrow together. Now, a couple different things that I want to give you a heads up on, some new stuff. There's a new app called Clubhouse. It's right now, it's only in beta for iOS or Apple users. It's invite only. I found it back in December. And what I have found to be true about it is that people feel heard. Unlike Facebook and LinkedIn and the other social media platforms, there's something different about Clubhouse. Yes, there are plenty of people looking to monetize everything. They listen to reply, not listen to connect. They're seeking attention in this attention economy. There's all that there, no doubt about it. And certainly the app has had some growing pains. Anything in beta usually does. That's why they call it beta testing. But there's something magical when you find the right communities, communities where people are sharing stories for the very first time in the Kintsugi spirit, people trying to come together to raise money and awareness and services for those impacted by the winter storms down in the Southwest, down in Texas in our country, folks practicing mindfulness. So, so it's this concoction of a dinner party and a live podcast and a conference call and just maybe a small little coffee clutch. I think it's a wonderful tool for extroverts and introverts. It's a way to build community. And here's the thing, it's just our voice. And we can hear everything in our voice when we're happy and sad and hopeful, when we have moments of growth, but we can also hear the cracks. And what I've noticed over the last three months is that we all have felt some of the cracks of the last year. 
even people who have crushed it, if you will, over the last year. Some people have had their best year ever. So that is true. But even, even for them, their backpack feels a little bit heavier. So I do think Clubhouse is onto something. So there's something magical about our voice and just the ability to connect, which is even different than here on the Kintsugi podcast and certainly different than most of the other social media apps. So if you're on Clubhouse, I would be honored if we connect. I'm hosting two rooms each week. One's on Tuesday nights at 7, 10 p.m. Eastern, and it's called Kintsugi. I mean, it's a platform for people to share their stories in a very safe environment. It runs for about an hour. And the next room happens at 4 p.m. Eastern every Friday, calling it the a room or a moment to pause, breathe, and reflect. A perfect way to just let it go. Let whatever happened this week go. A moment to pause, breathe, and reflect. Empty that backpack of ours so we can have the right type of energy for the weekend. So two rooms I host, but I'm there from time to time during the course of the week. If you need an invite to Clubhouse, just let me know. I'll be happy to send one your way as long as I have them. But again, just a little programming note that I hope we can connect there as well and have a little bit more interaction. So with that, as always, thanks for listening to another conversation about resilience here on the Kintsugi podcast. If you can share, that'd be great. Subscribe or comment. That would be wonderful. That would mean a lot to me. And until next week's conversation about resilience, please remember to pause, breathe and reflect and build your sense of belonging to yourself so you can create a greater sense of belonging to others. And of course, have fun storming the castle. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.